I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and welcome to Paranormal Almanac. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's talk about hoaxes. Let's debunk some paranormal stuff. Now, you might be asking, why am I doing an episode all about hoaxes? Well, one, because I love to debunk the BS so that the real paranormal stuff can be actually scientifically investigated and... Well, recently I was called arrogant for my need to debunk stuff. Then this same moron tried to belittle me for having a small dog. Mess with me or Paranormal Almanac? All you want. But fuck right off if you want to go after Stitch. So, in response to I'm being arrogant for debunking stuff, let's do a whole episode. But first, as always, shout-outs to the Paramaniacs, the coolest bunch of people ever. That's right, we have Aaron, Aaron, Alicia, Amber, Angie, Ariel, Austin, Autumn, Brody, Seth, Carolyn, Chuck, Dan, Daniel, Devin, Dill, Drake, Edgar, Elliot, Erica, Aaron, Fabian, Harley, Heidi, J-Mark, Jade, Jamie, nope, Jaime, damn it, Jaime, I'm gonna get it right one of these times right off the bat, I swear. It's Jaime. Jaime, everybody. Jaime, who is very cool and very patient. Uh, with me, that is. Jason, Jeff, Jennifer, Jerry, Jim, Joe, John, Joshua, Joshua, Kelsey, Kenny, Kira, Kyle, Kyle, Laura, Laura Rutho, Laura McCune, hey, howdy, hi. Lawrence, Leo, Lindsay, M. Caballero, Maggie, hey, Maggie. Michaela, Martin, Matt, Matt, Megan, Megan, Milo, Nanashi, Nick, Pablo, Peaches, the cat, my favorite one ever, Rachel, Reed, Richard, Rosa, Sage, Sarah, Sarah, Shelly, Suzanne, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, which I'm going to be hanging out with them very soon and I cannot wait, Travis, Trey, Troy, Veronica, and Vincente. If you want to be like the cool kids, head on over to Paranormal, nope, haha, <laughs> head on over to Patreon.com slash Paranormal Almanac. Alrighty, let's head on over to Paranormal News. There is a shit ton of paranormal news going on, and I love it. But it's actually making it very hard for me to pick which ep or, uh, which news story is going to go on which episode. So I figured, hey, there was like 10 or 12 articles this week. Let's talk about 10 or 12 articles real quick. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Paranormal News. The first one up is Navy says, yes, those unidentified aerial phenomena videos are real. And so many people sent me this article or, or a variation of this article. I cannot thank you guys enough for being like, hey, Kurt, look, paranormal news. I love it. If you see paranormal news, either email me at paranormalalmanac at gmail.com or just go on over to the Facebook page of uh, Paranormal Almanac and message me there. 
So over a year after videos were released showing the public what appeared to be footage of UFOs captured by Navy pilots who exchanged astonished commentary, a Navy official has reportedly released a statement confirming that the videos do in fact depict unexplained aerial phenomena. That is huge. That is disclosure level huge. Now, like I said, I've got a couple of variations of this story. I'm not going to read the whole thing, so let's get over to the next one. This one is from Live Science. UFOs are real, and you were never supposed to see them, military officials say. So same UFOs, those uh, Tic Tacs, those unidentified aerial phenomena. And this time, in a statement delivered to the intelligence news website, The Black Vault, Joseph Gratishire, Gratisher, Gratisher, a spokesperson for the Deputy Chief of Naval, Opera Naval Operations for Information Warfare announced that the Navy officially considers the craft in these three videos unidentified aerial phenomena. That means that the videos are authentic and that the objects which, which were detected in restricted military training airspaces in 2004 and 2015 were not supposed to be here. Now, the UFO footage was also never cleared for public release Gratisher told the Black Vault, meaning that these are uh, three unidentified phenomena you were never supposed to know about. According to the Black Vault, the videos may have been improperly released by a former Pentagon employee who had applied for permission to share them across several government agencies as part of, as part of a database on unmanned aerial vehicles. Now, supposedly he was, you know, just compiling this the man received permission to share the videos for U.S. government use only. Um, again, this is all paperwork obtained by the Black Vault. Now, however, Navy officials never declassified the footage for public release. So that is huge as well. Like I said, it's huge on uh, both stories. It's very huge. This is disclosure level huge. These are videos of unidentified aerial phenomena. The Navy doesn't have a clue what they are. Not only that, the Navy never wanted us to see them. I think that's even more, I think that's the bigger part of this story. We were never supposed to see these videos. These videos got out, and now they can't get them back. Unlike in the 1940s where they would have just said, oh, it's a weather balloon. They can't do that now. Either we're smarter, or, well, we are definitely smarter, or we're just more jaded. Well, we're definitely more jaded. But either way... They realize they can't just, you know, put that genie back in the bottle. This thing is out. This story is out. And guess what? It's only getting bigger month after month. Okay, up next in paranormal news, Haunted Store captures angry ghosts in new videos. So the story goes, it's no surprise to hear stories about ghosts haunting old hospitals, isolated, isolated graveyards, or abandoned mental institutions. But lately, they seem to be hanging out in schools, hotels, even Disneyland. Now, they're apparently haunting stores. That's what one shop owner in Cork, Ireland is claiming after the release of a paranormal activity recorded on the security cameras at the store. In it, a package of rice cakes mysteriously flies off a shelf and a full fruit basket drops to the ground, even though no one was in the shop at the time. The store's owner, Tom O'Flynn, uploaded the footage and explained to a radio station, I would have been very skeptical with things like this, but I looked at all angles, and I'm at a loss with this. Now, he uploaded the footage from other cameras to show that no one could have pushed the items, and I like that part of it. It's not just one angle where you could go, well, someone's underneath it, someone's behind it. No, he did it from all angles. Now, O'Flynn explained the background too, saying, 
I started Wednesday morning and I saw biscuits on the ground and thought nothing of it. Then went around and saw a large fruit bowl on the ground, so we checked CCTV and it looks as though it was pushed off. This was at 1230 at night and both incidents happened about 10 minutes apart. The bowl was full of banana, oranges, and apples, and it got pulled over, and there was nobody around. Jesus, when I saw it, my heart kind of pounded. I didn't know what to make of it. I looked at all angles, and I couldn't get my head around it. Making things even creepier is that the store is located between two funeral homes. That's a weird location for a store, but it's not exactly creepy. All right, let's take a look at this video. Uh, again, I wanted to wait until it was... Um, yes, except... I wanted to wait until I was on air to actually watch the video. Okay, so here's the video. Ugh, that is not the best quality video, I can tell you that. Am I really supposed to be seeing something? Hmm. Hmm. Oh, there it goes. What the hell am I looking at? Eh. All right, so I'm going to post both videos up on the... Actually, the, the link to this article with both videos up on the Facebook page. So head on over to Paranormal Almanac on Facebook and tell me what you think. Do you think it's a ghost? Do you think it's a... Uh discernible paranormal activity at all. Let me know what you guys think. Okay, up next in paranormal news, a legally haunted New York home back on the market. A well-known late 19th century home in New York is about to hit the market for $1.9 million, though the three-level dwelling in the heart of town comes with a spooky catch. It's legally haunted. The Hudson Riverfront home at 1 La Vita Place it was built in the 1890s, boasts an expanded seven bedrooms, five bathrooms, spectacular, vo <laughs> spectacular views, and a spooky past. I gotta say, it is a beautiful home. So if anybody wants to buy me a $1.9 million home in New York, please uh, buy me this one. The 4,600 square foot Queen Anne Victorian home was the center of a lawsuit that led to a New York Supreme Court ruling in 1991 declaring the home haunted. According to reports, owner Helen Ackley, who lived in the home from the 1960s to the 1980s, sold the house to Jeffrey Stambovsky in 1989. However, however, Ackley failed to disclose that while she inhabited the home, she'd allegedly witnessed Revolutionary War-era poltergeist who shook beds, slammed doors, and walked the halls. Once Stambovsky reportedly learned of the scary additions, he sued Ackley for the omission and demanded his deposit back to get out of purchasing the expansive home, which sits about 25 miles north of New York City. The Supreme Court ruled in Stambovsky's favor. However, the haunted past seems to be just that, in the past, as it had several high-profile inhabitants, including director and screenwriter Adam Brooks, Jewish rapper Modest Yahoo, and singer-songwriter Ingrid Michelson, none of whom experienced anything haunted. The house has been restored over the years to keep up with its uh, 1890s glory, complete with a inlaid hardwood floors, arched doorways, and wraparound porch. It also wraparound porch. It also boasts some modern details. Blah blah blah. Doesn't matter. It's a haunted house. I want to see these Revolutionary War era poltergeists who shake beds and slam doors and walk the halls. So again, if you got 1.9 lying around and you said, "Hey, I want to do something nice for Kurt." You can buy me this house at One La Vida Place in uh, New York. Up next, Loch Ness Monster's giant eel theory is supported by newly surfaced video. The theory that the fabled Loch Ness Monster could be a giant eel has been giving a boost thanks to a video posted to a social media, thanks to a video posted to social media showing a long, slender creature swimming in the River Ness. The Ness Fishery Board tweeted the video on September 1st, just days prior to New Zealand researcher Neil Gemmell's press conference where he revealed that the results of his study 
and said it's possible the legendary creature could be a giant eel. Uh, bu -bu -bu -bu. uh let's watch this video real quick. It's a fish. I see a fish. We're underwater. Wait, is that all I was supposed to see? Still a fish. All I see is a fish. What the hell? All I see is a fish floating around. I don't know what I'm supposed to be seeing in that video. Oh, it's supposed to be at the top? What? Huh. I will be honest, I don't see anything in this video. Let me expand it to full screen. Oh, that made it worse. Oh. Oh, no, no, no. There is something there. I thought it was weird lighting, but then actually there was something there. And it was fairly big. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that I know where to look, once you know where to look in this video, it's actually quite cool. Now, it's obviously not Nessie-sized, but it is a larger-than-fish eel, so it's actually pretty cool. Okay, I take it back. That was a cool video. Good job, Gemmel. Okay, up next in Paranormal News, a viral video that sparked theories of a Chinese Loch Ness Monster. Oh, wait, hold on. I gotta flip these. Hold on. That's gonna be the next story. I'm sorry. The next story is... China gripped after sightings of its own Loch Ness monster. Something is lurking in the deep in Chinese fame in China's famous Yangtze River, and a social media discussion is rife over what it might be. On Friday, footage appeared on China's popular Sinao Weibo microblog, sure why not, of what appeared to be a long black creature maneuvering through the waters, and it has dominated online discussions ever since. That's right, actually I got a bunch of people that sent this one to me as well. And then one person who sent me the next story, and I was like, oh, all right. So, uh, yeah, don't get too excited, but it says, Excitement over the footage. A video filmed off the coast of the city of Yai Chang in western Hubei province, close to the Three Gorges Dam, captured the unusual scene. The video has racked up more than 6 million views and hundreds of thousands of likes after being shared by the popular Pear video. It shows what appears to be a giant eel or snake slithering the surface of the water. And this thing is huge. Like, seriously huge. Whatever this thing was, it was huge. So let's get on to the next story, because I kind of already told you. That viral video that sparked theories of a Chinese Loch Ness Monster turned out to show a big piece of discarded rubber. Nothing more, nothing less. That's right. This really cool video that did look like it, like the Loch Ness Monster, is a ginormous discarded piece of rubber, unfortunately. So, first they have the uh, video... Oh, Jesus Christ. Alright, first they have the video of the ginormous thing. Guy couldn't apparently turn off his motor to take the video. Yeah, that's 37 seconds of that I don't need. And then the next, very next frame is this ginormous piece of rubber that they found on shore. So, sadly, China, you do not have a Loch Ness Monster in the Yangtze River. As much as I would like everybody to have a Loch Ness Monster, you do not. Okay, up next in Paranormal News, Earthlings descend on Area 51 for aliens and parties. It wasn't huge. It wasn't thousands of people. I personally did not show up because I knew it wasn't going to be huge or a thousand people, but they say a couple hundred people, I only saw maybe a couple dozen, did show up and had some fun in the morning, and thankfully, only two of them got arrested. Two people went under the, the, the gate, and they actually got arrested. Um, 
Well, they got detained, I'll put it that way. But um, unfortunately, no one broke into Area 51. No one got that close. No one found the aliens. No one rescued them. Still a neat, fun, really odd thing that happened in our lifetime, so I'm all for it. Storm Area 51? Sure, why not? And finally, wait, is it finally? No, it's not. And next in paranormal news, an anonymous flyer denies Bigfoot is the reason for bridge closure. One resident in Vermont said that she thinks there is a local Bigfoot because she has heard unexplained rustling behind her home. An anonymous flyer denying that Bigfoot is behind the prolonged, explo the prolonged closure of a bridge in a town in Vermont has got locals talking about the mythical forest creatures. The flyer, first spotted at the post office in Bradford, said the prolonged closure of the Creamery Bridge over the Waits River was not due to, quote, the displacement of or intrusion on a Sasquatch or Bigfoot, either a single, cre single creature or several. And in the uh, local Vermont uh, uh, post office, it says, Attention, we would like to put to rest any and all rumors regarding the Creamery Bridge, Bridge 22, that crosses the Waits River here in Bradford. The prolonged closure of the bridge is due primarily to deck placement, deck replacement, and not because of a displacement of or intrusion on a Sasquatch or Bigfoot, either a single creature or several. This is absolutely untrue and frankly quite and frankly quite ludicrous. These rumors born of an agitated imagination are to be ignored and disregarded. You know that whole like protest too much? I think they are protesting just a bit too much. A lot of the residents do think that that is exactly what is happening. That this bridge or the construction on the bridge was shut down because of Bigfoot activity. Um, you know what? I'm going to go with the people and say, F you, stop messing with Bigfoot and don't shoot him. And finally, not one drop of blood. Cattle are being mysteriously mutilated and killed in eastern Oregon. Now, this is another one that everybody was sending to me. And again, I thank you. Please send them all. Send them my way. Any news story, send them my way. Paranormal, you know what I mean. Outside of Pendleton, Oregon, Terry Anderson's cattle have messed up his irrigation spigots again. The cows knock them down pretty much daily, and he has to fix them. He jumps out of his side. What the fuck does this have to do with it? Let's uh, move on. Here we go. Not one drop of blood. Right now in remote eastern Oregon, a single... A serial crime spree is unfolding. Young, purebred bulls are mysteriously showing up dead. Cowboys recently found several animals with body parts precisely removed. And it's happened just like this before in the West. It happened to Anderson back in the 80s when one of the rancher's mother cows was mysteriously killed overnight. From his home place, Anderson points to the exact spot where he found her on top of a mountain. He says he's never gotten over it. As he remembers, Anderson says he might have been... Might have just might had just been near the spot the night before. The next morning, his cow was laid over and dead, her udder removed with something razor sharp, and not one drop of blood anywhere, Anderson says. Over 200 miles away, outside of Princeton, Oregon, Andy Davies is canning... What the fuck? What terrible story? Come on. Oh, okay, I guess it does connect. Andy Davies is outside of... Uh, over 200 miles away, outside Princeton, there's a person, Andy Davies. I'm now going to skip ahead to the pertinent stuff where another cut-up and bloodless cow was found two years ago a mile from her home place. A hunter discovered the carcass near a water trough just hours after the kill. Her son, a butcher at the time, inspected the slain animal. 
He couldn't understand how the cuts were made so clean. Davy says she and her husband rode strategic circles around the area with four-wheelers to try and find vehicle tracks, horse tracks, something. They never found anything. And in this country, everything you do leaves tracks, Davy says. Next, uh, this story is terribly worded, but then it goes on to Sylvie's Valley Ranch. This summer, five young purebred bulls were cut down in their prime. Colby Marshall is the vice president of the ranch. We're going to drive in here on a little ways, oh, a little ways, and then we'll get out and we'll take a little walk to where one of the bulls was found and the carcass is still there. Coming upon one of the dead bulls is an eerie scene. The forest is hot and still, apart from a raven's repeating caw. The bull looks like a deflated plush toy. It smells, but weirdly, there are no signs of buzzards, coyotes, or other scavengers. His red coat is as shiny as if he was going to the fair. And they show a really sad photo of this bull, and they're not wrong. Nothing is tearing apart this bull. None of the scavengers are coming to get it. It's just lying there deflated. Marshall says these young animals were just reaching their top value as breeding bulls. Now the animals worth as much as $7,000 each and their collective future progeny worth hundreds of thousands of dollars are lost. Finding these rangy young bulls in this remote country can sometimes take the ranch experienced cowboys days. Marshall suspects a coordinated effort. It's rugged. I mean, this is the frontier. If some person or persons has the ability to take down a 2,000 pound range bull, you know, it's not inconceivable that they wouldn't have a lot of problems dealing with a 180-pound cowboy. Staff are now required to ride in pairs and encouraged to carry arms. So it's really bizarre, and the story goes on for a couple more people, but you get the essential, but you essentially get what the story's talking about. We have cattle mutilations again. Like, it, like the story said, these same kind of mutilations happened in the 80s, it happened in the 70s as well. Well, it looks like it's back, and it's just as bizarre as ever. These are just as precise uh, cuts and kills, no blood, and scavengers are not touching the carcasses. Really weird. I would love for someone to get to the bottom of it. I don't know how. Um, there's a lot of theories that it's UFOs, that it's the government, that it's a whole bunch of things. Time travelers, um, something coming through, a vortex. There's a bunch of theories as to what's killing these cows, but so far... We don't really know, and it doesn't seem to be stopping. Okay, that does it for paranormal news. Now, it's getting closer to Halloween, so get me your paranormal stories now. I'll be doing another listener ghost story episode in October, so if you have a paranormal story, a ghost story, UFO story, whatever, uh, black-eyed children, those would be great, I would love those. If you have any stories at all that you want to share, the only rule is it has to be true, Send them over to me at paranormalalmanac at gmail.com. And with that, let's take a quick break. Alrighty, we are back, and boy, was that the best ad ever. Didn't you love it? Did you buy two of them? Buy, buy me one as well. I'll be honest, I have no idea what these ads are for until after the fact. So if you heard an ad, I hope you enjoyed it. If you didn't hear an ad, well, I told you it would be a quick break. We're back. It's even quicker than you thought. Okay, like I said this week, is all about hoaxes. If you like debunks, then this one is for you. And I don't want to sound too arrogant, but I love debunking. Why? Well, when you get rid of the BS, all that's left that can't be explained is what we should all be focused on. Get rid of these BS stories. Start focusing on the real stuff. Let's start solving or trying to solve 
some of the paranormal stuff using science. Look, forever, people have been telling me that UFOs don't exist. Well, now we all know that isn't true. And it's not even a top story on every site for the next week like it should be. So paranormal stuff is out there. But this shit is not paranormal. In fact, it's not even real. The first ones on this list are a pair of young sisters that fooled the world. Actually, it was three sisters, but it was primarily a pair of sisters that fooled the world. And I mean, I mean that literally because they basically created spiritualism. And for nearly a decade, they convinced the world they were mediums and that they were communicating with the dead. They're known as the Fox Sisters, and let's start at the beginning. In 1848, Margareta, or Maggie Fox, was 14, and Kate, her 11-year-old sister, started telling neighbors and their mothers, and their mother, they had one mother, their sisters, that every night at bedtime, they would hear a series of raps on the wall and furniture in the room. Like, it would be on the walls, you hear knocking, then the furniture would start knocking, now, soon the raps could follow simple instructions like rap five times and then they would hear five raps or answer questions like if you're an injured spirit, do three taps and sure enough, three would be heard. Now, the girls addressed the spirit as Mr. Splitfoot, which is a nickname for the devil. That seems bad. How about you don't refer to him as Mr. Splitfoot? Now, later, they also claimed that the spirit creating the sounds was a dead peddler named Charles B. Rosna. R-O-S-N-A. Now, community leaders Isaac and Amy Post were so intrigued by the Fox sister story, and they had heard the local rumor that the spirit belonged to that of a peddler who had been murdered in the farmhouse five years beforehand, so they gathered a group of Rochester residents, and sure enough, when they examined the cellar of the Fox's home, they uncovered strands of hair and bone fragments. More on that later. All right, so the Post invited the girls to a public gathering at their home to see if they could communicate with the spirits at other locations or if it only was, like, retained to the Fox sisters' house. I suppose I went with as much unbelief as Thomas felt when he was introduced to Jesus after he had ascended, Isaac Post wrote. But he said he was swayed by very distinct thumps under the floor and several apparent answers to questions. Now, he was further convinced when Leah Fox, well, um, Leah Fox also proved to be a medium communicating with the Post's recently deceased daughter. This is that third sister I was telling you about. The Post rented the largest hall in Rochester and 400 people came to hear mysterious noises. Afterwards, Amy Post accompanied the sisters to a private, to a private chamber where they disrobed and were examined by a committee of skeptics who found no evidence of a hoax. This was very apparent. You're going to hear a lot that, a lot of that kind of stuff throughout this episode. Um, people tried to debunk them right, a, right away, and I, you know, I give them credit for that. But maybe they should have tried just a little bit harder. Anyhow, so this sparked a tour of the Fox sisters, um, the, the two Fox sisters. One of them stayed behind, but the other two were like, screw it, let's go on tour. And an editorial in the Scientific American at the time called the girls... The Spiritual Knockers from Rochester, which, you know, now that just sounds like a stripper. But back then, it was because of the whole, you know, rapping stuff. So they did their routine in the hotel's parlor, inviting 30 attendees to gather around a large table 
at the hours of 10 a.m., 5 p.m., and 8 p.m., and even made um, and even made more money by taking a private meeting or a bunch of private meetings, I should say, in between shows. Now, admission was $1, and the elite of the elite came, and boy, were they astonished by a session in which the spirits rapped in time to a popular song, not like, you know, Eminem rapping, but, you know, knocking rapping, and spelled out a message, and that message was, spiritualism will work miracles in the cause of reform. I would love to know how that rapping for that long of a sentence worked, you know, it can't be, you know, I'm going to start knocking. You tell me when I get to the letter. Okay, that's S. Okay, that's P. Okay, that's I. That would have taken forever. But somehow, the spirit, quote-unquote spirit, wrapped out the message, spiritualism will work miracles in the cause of reform. So like I said, Leah had stayed in New York, and she entertained callers in a seance room, while Kate and Maggie took the show to other cities, among them... Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus, St. Louis, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia. All right, from here we're going to fast forward to 1888. Margareta was paid $1,500 to tell her story of how they did it. She says, when we went to bed at night, we used to tie an apple to a string and move the string up and down, causing the apple to bump on the floor. Or we would drop the apple on the floor, making a strange noise every time it would rebound. Mother listened to this for a time. She would not understand it and did not suspect us as being capable of a trick because we were so young. The sisters went from apple dropping to cracking their knuckles, joints, and toes to just making rapping sounds with their feet. A great many people, when they would hear the rapping, imagine at once that the spirits are touching them, she'd explain. It's a very common delusion. Some very wealthy people came to see me some years ago when I lived in 42nd Street and I did some rappings for them. I made the spirit rap on the chair, and one of the ladies cried out, I feel the spirit tapping me on the shoulder. Now, of course, that was pure imagination. She offered another demonstration of how they did it in public, removing her shoe and placing her right foot upon a wooden stool. The room fell silent and still, and was rewarded with a number of short little raps. There stood a black-robed, sharp-faced widow, the New York Herald uh, reported, working her big toe and solemnly declaring that it was in this way she created the excitement that has driven so many persons to suicide or insanity. One moment it was ludicrous, the next it was weird. Now Maggie insisted that her sister Leah knew about the wrappings were fake all along and greedily exploited her younger sisters. Now that right after she said that, she exited the stage, she thanked God, that she, was that she was able to expose spiritualism. Maggie then recanted her confession only one year later. This was because she was broke, and frankly, she missed the spotlight. Now, this reversal actually pissed off other famous spiritualists, mostly because she had already told the public the ways they were tricking people. So to get back at them and their hatred of her, she went to a debate at the Manhattan Liberal Club, and under the pseudonym, Mrs. Spencer... Maggie revealed several more tricks of the BS spiritualists, and there was a shit ton of them at this time. Spiritualism exploded. And I mean, it really exploded. They were everywhere. They were fooling a lot of people and making a lot of money. 
Now, Maggie said that she uh, she also debunked the ways that the mediums wrote messages on blank slates by using their teeth or feet. She never reconciled with her sister, Leah, who died in 1890. Kate died two years later while on a drinking spree. And Maggie passed away eight months later in March of 1893. Now, let's fast forward to one more piece of BS about the Fox sisters. Many sites, and I mean many sites, say that they were real and Maggie just lied for the money. And the proof is because it was reported in 1904, school children who were playing in the sisters' childhood home discovered most of a skeleton in the walls. Now, it was just like the Fox sisters said so many years ago. That sounds cool and sounds impressive, right? Well, here's the problem with that. Five years later, another independent doctor, one not hired by the spiritualist, I might add. So the spiritualist hired a doctor when these bones were found, and they examined the skeleton, and whoa, yeah, it's totally a person. Well, this independent doctor, not hired by spiritualists, said, hey, it's only a few ribs and odds and ends. Oh, and most of them are chicken bones. He also reported that he had heard from a local man living near the house who had planted the bones as a practical joke or had been paid to plant them. I personally think he was paid by the spiritualist to plant them. So, just in case you need this case wrapped up for you, huh? Huh? See what I did there? Wrapped up? Like, you know, that kind of wrapping? Uh, the Fox sisters faked it. There is no ifs, no ands, no buts. Maggie debunked it. She showed him exactly how it was done. It doesn't matter that a year later she recanted so she could try and become famous and rich again. She debunked it. She showed him exactly how she was doing it. She showed him exactly how she was doing it. The reporters saw exactly how she was doing it, and it looked and sounded exactly like when they were at their peak. The Fox sisters faked it. People were so dumb that they didn't notice them taking a shoe off and hitting her toe against stuff in the room. That kind of astounds me, but not really. Back then, people were way more freaked out about the paranormal than we are now. They were so intense, they, they even said, oh my god, the spirit's touching me on the shoulder, when nothing was touching her on the shoulder. You're going to hear that a lot of the spiritualists on this list were just like the Fox sisters. It's something very simple and very dumb, but it convinced I was going to say thousands, but it might even be millions. Okay, next up was a time slip story that turned out to be fake. Remember, all the stories you were about to hear are fake. Everything after paranormal news is fake. Okay, got it? Here it goes. This is the tale of Lucy Lightfoot. It's a very popular tale that you can find online that many sites quote as being real in proof of time travel. Okay, Lucy Lightfoot was born at a farm near Balcombe on the Isle of Wight. Lucy disappeared without a trace. She was last seen around 10.30 in the morning of, uh, 10.30 a.m. on the morning of June 13th, 1831. According to legend, there was a near total eclipse of the sun that day. It got very dark. And there was this strange humming sound, like something from another world. That lasted about a half an hour. And during that eclipse, a violent thunderstorm also happened. That thunderstorm was so intense, it caused flooding and crop damage to the entire area. 
After the storm had stopped, locals found her horse, and it was tied to the gate of St. Olive's, or Olive's, I don't know, church in Gatcombe. But Lucy, nope, never seen again. Her parents offered a large, large reward for her return, but after waiting two years without any leads, they moved away. So then what happened? Well, in 1865, over 30 years later, Reverend Samuel Trelawney unearthed the manuscript by Felipe de Mezeres, who was a chancellor of Peter I, and on this manuscript, he noticed something odd. There was a listing of names of the English knights. The story was presented as a historical fact in numerous magazines and books. I'm telling you, this was real, but it's not. This was real, and this is what happened. On that list of English knights' names, there was mentioned a girl that followed one of the local knights. And that girl was Lucy Lightfoot. That's right. Little Lucy, who went missing during total eclipse. Lucy time slipped back to the 1300s to the time of Peter I and lived out her life with one of the English knights. Great story. Fantastic story. Really cool. Wish it was real. Well, it's not. Because it was revealed to be the work of fiction created by Reverend James Evans, who was rector of Gatcombe from 1965 to 1973, who wrote a pamphlet entitled The Mystery of Lucy Lightfoot. Now, he said he wrote it as a lighthearted way to raise funds for the church. So, Lucy doesn't exist. That manuscript from uh, Felipe de Mezeres, the Chancellor Peter I, doesn't exist. And if it does exist, it sure as shit doesn't mention Lucy Lightfoot. Still, a lot of sites, and I mean a lot of sites, say Lucy Lightfoot and her time slip is real. So if you see a site that says that, you might want to mention it to them. Hey, uh, that was debunked, and it was debunked like 40 years ago. So the next couple are about paranormal and photography. First, we have Mr. William H. Mumler. Now, it's the tale of spirit photography and the man who invented it or perfected it, depending on where you get information. But from what I can find, he is the first spirit photographer ever. Now, this uh, first spirit photo was actually taken by accident in 1861 by William Mumler, who was a jeweler as well as a photographer in Boston. Here's where the BS starts. He says after taking a self-portrait, he noticed an image of someone behind him. At first, he thought he hadn't cleaned the plate properly, so he cleaned it again, took another photo, and still saw the same figure behind him. And that's when he realized it was the ghost of his cousin. All right, so those same type of BS spiritualists from that Fox sister story? Yeah, those kind of people all freaked out and publicly claimed there was now a way to take pictures of ghosts and make a shit ton of money off of it. Now, Mumler, like I said, seeing dollar signs, started taking photos, <clears throat> started taking photos of people for 10 bucks a photo. 1861, $10 a photo. Now, even though he didn't guarantee a spirit, what do you know? Most of the photos had them. Now, he was open to skeptics, though, and let them take a look at the process. In fact, there were several investigations, including one by a not-so-reputable source. A spiritualistic newspaper called the Banner of Light printed this letter on November 18, 1862, stating the observations of another photographer, William Gway. Sure. Mr. Editor, 
Having been informed of Mr. William H. Mumler that you desire to publish the results of my investigation into the possibility and genuineness of Mr. M's photographic impression of spirit forms, it gives me much pleasure to detail to you what I've seen. As I've been commissioned by messengers, by masters, I don't know, J. Davis and company, you can rest assured that I was resolved, if permitted, to allow nothing to slip my utmost scrutiny. Having had 10 years continual practice in this particular branch that is negative on glass and positive on paper from negative, I felt competent to detect any form of deception. Having been permitted by Mr. Mumler every facility to investigate, I went through the whole of the operation of selecting, cleaning, preparing, coating, silvering, and putting into the shield the glass upon which Mr. M proposed that a spirit form and mine should be imparted. Never taking my eyes and not allowing Mr. M to touch the glass until it had gone through the whole of the operation. The result was that there came upon the glass a picture of myself and to my utter astonishment having previously examined and scrutinized every crack and corner, plate holder, camera, box, tube, the insides of the bath, and etc. Another portrait. Having since continued on several occasions my investigations as described above and received even more perfect results than on the first trial, I have been obliged to endorse its legitimacy. Respectively yours, William Gway. Okay, so again, this was done by a spiritualist newspaper. Big red flag. But with this kind of endorsement, business boomed for Mumler for years. He took thousands of photographs, including one very famous photo of Mary Todd Lincoln showing the assassinated Lincoln behind her. Now that he was taking such famous pictures, though, even more reputable skeptics showed up and they noticed something. Several of the spirits in the photos were actually photos of people who were still alive. They weren't spirits at all. Now, it took nine years, but eventually the police were involved and Mumler went to court. And even when the world's best charlatan, P.T. Barnum, testified against Mumler, and without evidence, he accused him, he accused Mumler, of sneaking in or breaking into people's houses to get the photos of the deceased people that would show up on his spirit photograph. That's right, he was a fake. Barnum also paid a man to fake a spirit photo as proof to how easily it was done. P.T. Barnum said, I went yesterday to Mr. Bogardus's, that's funny that it's Mr. Bogardus's gallery, and asked him if he would take a spirit photograph, telling him that I did not want any humbug about it. He said he could do it. I examined the glass and discovered nothing on it. I saw the process of pouring over the first liquid and afterwards the pouring of nitrate of silver and then saw it placed in the camera. When done, it had my likeness and the shadow of Abraham Lincoln. I saw the ghost of Lincoln as soon as it was developed in the darkroom. I was unconscious of any spiritual presence. So basically, what he was saying was, it was just that easy. Even with the person watching every step, spirit photography was very easy to do and very easy to fool the unsuspecting. This guy did it for P.T. Barnum while P.T. Barnum watched every step. And sure enough, there's your fake Abraham Lincoln spirit photo. Now, other, testified, other people testified in Mumler's defense, swearing the images were real. I have had photographs of my deceased daughter who died in August of 1863, Paul Bremond told the court. 
She told me when she died that if it was permitted, she would return to me from the spirit land. By this photograph, I have seen she has returned. And that's why these things are so sad. It is taking advantage of people's grief and money, frankly. You're bilking them out of money, giving them hope, and it's all bullshit. And that's the kind of stuff that pisses me off. Another photographer, William Slee of Poughkeepsie, New York, testified that Mumler produced spirit photographs in his own gallery and had no idea how he'd done it, and others testified they knew exactly how it was done. During his hearing, during the hearing, fellow photographers identified nine different methods that could aid in the photographic imitation of quote spirits, including techniques like multiple exposure and composition print oh and combination printing, sorry. As David Brewster in his 1856 book on stereoscope explained, for the purpose of amusement, the photographer might carry us even into the regions of the supernatural. His his art, as I have elsewhere shown, I guess shown is the past tense of shown. Um, as I have elsewhere shown, enables him to give a spiritual appearance to one or more of his figures and to exhibit them as quote thin air amid the solid realities of the stereoscopic picture. Now, like I was saying, during the Civil War, there was a lot of deaths. There was a lot of keepsake photos, including keepsake photos of dead people. Now, these photos do seem to be what uh, Mumler was using, basically. As in the case of Barnum's Lincoln portrait, it was just layers upon layers. He used the images of the not famous or the dead, if he could get his hands on them, to put spirits in all of his photos. If a customer shared enough information with the photographer, and if the selected face was faint and blurry enough, the resulting spirit could convince a person who wanted to be convinced, said P.T. Barnum at the time. Now, ultimately, the jury couldn't decide, and Mumler was acquitted, but even though he won this, his business completely suffered, and he stopped spirit photography altogether. Like I said, it was incredibly easy to create spirit photography back then, and people were very easy to fool and profit off of. And it again, it, it just angers me that all these people were people with hope that were finding out this was all bullshit or people with hope giving him his money over and over again. Ten bucks a photo in the 1860s. That's insane. All right, let's stick with BS photography for a second and let's talk about thoughtography. Now, if you thought spirit photography was dumb, just you wait, because this one is about Ted Sirios, who is a Chicago area bellhop that claimed he could transfer his thoughts directly from his mind onto film. He called the process thoughtography because, frankly, Ted doesn't have that much of imagination. It's a dumb title. It's a dumb name. It's a dumb thing. Not surprisingly, the images were blurry, but did have some recognizable objects in them, such as buildings, cars, or even aircraft. Here's what would happen. If you went and seen him, if you went to see him do it at the time, Ted would get really drunk. And I mean really drunk. This is true. I looked it up. He would get insanely drunk. Then he would scream and wail and shout and make faces. Then he would hold a small tube that he called his gizmo. And that's gizmo with an S, not a Z because he's an idiot. Now, we'd hold this gizmo up against the lens of a Polaroid camera. Red flag. He would then wait for the thoughtograph to emerge, and he would shout to the person behind the camera, take the picture. So how did he do it? 
Well, James Randi, who is the world-renowned debunker, did the same thing and got similar results. The trick? Concealing a small lens with a photographic transparency inside the gizmo. Simple as that. All right, here's my question. How come no one investigated the gizmo before, during, or after the photographs? That would have been the first place I looked. Why do you need this gizmo? I thought you said it was photograph, not gizmography. You're an idiot, Ted Sirios. I'm glad you're dead. Okay, just as dumb as photography is, this next one is even dumber. It's called psychic dentistry. Look, I wish it was real. I really do. I really wish a psychic could just fix my teeth by thinking about it or doing psychic trickery. That would be awesome. I hate the dentist. Sorry, dentist, if you're listening. I don't think you are. Um, look, psychic dentistry is just dumb. His name was Willard Fuller, and he was called and he called himself a faith healer. That's your first big red flag. Now, he practiced faith healing in the 60s. He claimed to have healed more than 40,000 people. 1960s, not 1860s, 1960s. 40,000 people were fooled by him. What did he do? Well, he filled cavities. Okay, I guess that's cool if it was real, but it's not. He changed silver into golden fillings. That seems kind of weird, but whatever. He straightened crooked teeth or produced new teeth. That's right. He made bad teeth whole and even produced a new set of teeth in some elderly patients, all with his mind. How did he fool that many people? Well, I kind of just said it a minute ago. He did a lot of his psychic dentistry to the elderly. Now, the elderly would just think that they were being fixed only to have the same issues as before, or they would not have any more issues because they would, they would pass away. They were elderly. It was all like mind over matter things. It's the placebo effect, but a placebo effect that doesn't really help because they still have these same issues with their teeth. Now, they said that he was very persuasive. Some patients afterwards admitted that the filling that appeared had actually always been there and they had just forgot. Again, he preyed on the elderly. They were also, a lot of them were so embarrassed that they were duped that they just never came forward to call him out. Now, when he was asked to do his psychic dentistry under controlled lab conditions, he would refuse or say he wasn't, quote, feeling the power. Magicians, magicians and skeptics tested him and his patients. And guess what? They didn't find evidence of anything being done. One dentist examined some patients of Fuller, and in one case, that miraculous gold filling that appeared? Yeah, it turned out to be tobacco stains. He was bullshit, allegedly. Can't sue me because I said allegedly. All right, look, I'm going to say it a lot on this episode, apparently, but it's true. I really, really hate con men that take advantage of people. Look, you want to be a fake psychic for fun and entertainment or, you know, magic parties or, or the magic castle or whatever? Cool. Have fun, but maintain that it's a trick. Maintain that it's for entertainment. When you take people's hard-earned money, it really pisses me off. But he's dead, so fuck him.
Up next is a poltergeist story that is still debated online. Why? I have no idea because it's a very apparent fake poltergeist story. It was all done by 14-year-old Tina Resch in 1982. That's right, we're all the way up to 1982 already. Alright, so it's 1982. The Resch family had all the typical poltergeist activity in their house all of a sudden. Glasses were being broken or knocked off of tables or shelves. Photographs, telephones, and lamps were being thrown about and broken. And everything seemed to be centered around their adopted daughter, Tina. The family fully admitted that Tina and the parents would argue a lot. They had a hard time with the transition of being adopted parents. But they swore that all the poltergeist activity was real. They said they saw stuff fly through the air so much that they called a local reporter named Mike Harden. Now, Mike Harden and photographer Fred Shannon showed up and got to work. Fred was almost instantly shocked by what he saw, or kind of saw, actually, but we'll get to that in a minute. Fred had taken a series of photographs while visiting the family, and the best of these photographs showed Tina cringing on the couch as a telephone is moving through the air in front of her. Sounds like a great freaking photo. The story was a hit. These uh, photographs in the story in the newspaper meant it went worldwide. And soon, every publication sent their own reporters to the house. In fact, on March 8, 1984, approximately 40 reporters filled a 20 by 20 room in the Resch's home, but nothing happened all day. In fact, and this should be no surprise to you, the effects seemed to only take place when nobody was looking, including a lamp seemingly knocking itself over, which was captured by one of the video crews. So... That reporter Harden from earlier, he still believed everything. He said, look, that lamp, it knocked itself over. There were a whole lot of people there that saw it. No one saw it. So he was convinced he had the story of the century. So he called upon parapsychologist William Roll, and they were hoping for him to witness the activity on the, um, at the house. They wanted him to actually go there, actually see it while they were filming how, would amazing, how amazing would that be to have a parapsychologist standing there when poltergeist activity was actually happening? Okay, so Roll arrived, and that video crew went through. So Roll arrived, and he started his investigation. While that was happening, that video crew that saw that lamp that got footage of that lamp being knocked over, well, they went through all of their footage, and when a camera that had been left on caught Tina pushing over the lamp gasp, big surprise, they said, hey, wait a minute, we have footage, we thought it was just this footage, but this camera was on as well, and it shows you, Tina, knocking over the lamp. Well, when they asked her about it, Tina laughed it off and said that she had been tired of all the reporters there pressuring her to make something happen, so she gave them what they had come for, just so they would leave. Now, even with this, Harden was still like he was convinced, this is a real poltergeist, I know it is. And he kept investigating. And the story caught the eye of someone else. That's right. James Randi is back again. So Randi and the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry shows up to the house and Randi offers a check of $10,000 if the Resch family can show any kind of paranormal activity while they were there. Now the mother thought that was very insulting and refused to let them in to investigate. 
Randy quoted Joan, the mom is saying, We've had a circus going already, and I don't need a magic show as well. Eh, whatever. Now, the family announces that uh, they were going on two-week vacation. They're like, nope, screw y'all. We're leaving for two weeks. We don't, wanna, we don't want anything to do with Randy. We're out of here. What they didn't know was Randy was actually watching the house and noticed that they never left. So Randy decides, all right, if I can't get in to interview the family, they won't let me in the house. They're faking a vacation. Screw it. I'm going to go interview the interviewers. And he started to talk to people who had been at the press conference in the Rush's home and then he does one better. James Randy actually purchased the contact sheet of photos the photographers took of the instances from the paper itself, the story that made this thing worldwide. Those original photos, he buys them all. Now, when he went to go and collect the contact sheet, holding his receipt of payment, the editor realized the story was in jeopardy, and they were kind of in jeopardy, and refused and he tried to get his photos back from Randy. Now, Randy says, the editor moved over to me and he tried to take the contact sheet from me and I snatched it back. I had the receipt right there and I held it up in front and I said, I paid for this. This is my property and I'm leaving. And he said, the editor said, oh no, you're not. And even called the guard. Now the guard came over and said, yes, sir. He said, this man has merchandise and I want it back. So James Randy says, I looked at the guard and said, this is my receipt. This is my merchandise. I'm going out the door. If you stop me, I'll sue the ass off of you and the entire newspaper. And I'm not kidding. I am very, very serious. And he says he stuck the receipt into the envelope, walked to the door and didn't hear a word behind him. He says they didn't know what to do. And I walked out and I had the contact sheet. So here's where the story um, really falls apart. That contact sheet that Randy bought it showed all of the photos Fred Shannon had shot. Photos that were not included in any of the stories, the ones that the paper had, quote, deemed unworthy of publication because it caught Tina throwing or pushing over everything that the poltergeist had done that they had reported on. Now, Fred Shannon did an interview later in which he said he couldn't manage to catch anything when he held his camera, but as he lowered the camera or looked away, he would see something, but it would be too late. He felt like there was a force of some kind that didn't want to be directly observed. So he positioned his camera in Tina's direction, then looked away. And when he saw a blur of indistinct motion from the corner of his eye, he would snap the photos. Yep, it was Tina all along. Every photo confirmed it. So as simple as that poltergeist activity came, boom, it just stopped. And Tina was just a spoiled brat again. Now again... For some reason, this one is put on just about every list of real poltergeist in America. No one takes the time to actually investigate it. And again, I didn't investigate it. This was done by James Randi. This information is out there if you're looking for it. Okay, up next is a short and equally dumb one. One that, again, no surprises. You're going to hear this a lot from just about every one of these. One that is still disputed online. It's called the Stockwell Ghost, and it's so dumb, I'll make this a quick one. The year, was seven, the year was 1772 in London. The detached house on the east side of Green had a ghost in it. Mrs. Golding and her female servant lived there, and here's what happened. China, glass, plates, etc. fell and broke, and various articles of furniture without any visible cause were removed or tumbled, and it scared the hell out of Mrs. Golding and the town. 
When they investigated, they found out the whole thing was caused by Ann Robinson, Mrs. Golding's servant. They caught her doing it, yet this stupid story still shows up on real ghost story sites everywhere. Boom, done. Moving on to the next one. Whew. Okay, this next one is one that I'm including on this episode because it involves another famous skeptic who outed so many scammers. That skeptic was Harry Houdini. All right, the year was 1924. And Mina Candon, or Marjorie, as she was known by her fans, or the Blonde Witch of Lime Street, as she was known by her haters, was famous for conjuring the voice of her dead brother, Walter, whose spirits would rap out a message, or tip a table, and even sounded a trumpet or two. Now, witnesses said that Walter was very unfriendly. He would only answer questions begrudgingly, and quoting scripture in a very gruff, disembodied voice. Now, besides Walter, Marjorie would also, quote, extrude ectoplasm from her orifices. Now, photos from the time show ectoplasm coming out of her nose and ears. It mostly emerged from beneath her sheer kimono like a string of entrails, quote, an ectomorphic hand that Walter used to carry out his commands. Before we get to Houdini, another famous person gets involved with this Marjorie case. And that person was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who witnessed a seance by Marjorie in his London home and was, boom, 100% convinced that Marjorie was real. He never, ever wavered from this. He was so convinced by what he saw that he had, uh, that he recommended her to the editors of Scientific American who was offering a $2,500 prize to the first medium who could verifiably demonstrate to its six-man investigative committee, quote, a visual psychic manifestation. So Scientific American's J. Malcolm Byrd, who chaired the committee, psychologist William McDougall of Harvard, former MIT physicist Dam Damiel? Daniel Comstock, and two members of the Society of Psychical... Psychical? Really? That's a word? Of psychical research, Herward, Herward, he's got a dumb name, Herward Carrington and Walter Prince. Now, all of these men became so convinced after examining Marjorie over 20 times. So we got J. Malcolm, that's one. William McDougall, that's two. Daniel Comstock, that's three. Uh, Hareward Carrington and Walter Prince. That's only five. There was supposed to be a six-man investigation team. I'll get to that sixth man in just a minute, but I bet you know who it is. So anyhow, these men were so convinced that they were ready to hand over the money. And the New York Times reported, Marjorie passes all psychic tests scientists find. They find no trickery in scores of seances with Boston Medium. Finally, we get to Houdini. So Houdini came in. He was part of the committee. He was that sixth man. And he was not going to just hand her the money. So he cancels his own shows. He heads out to Boston for a very specific test. Marjorie agreed to this, Marjorie agreed to this test, and she entered the room and took her seat within a three-sided Chinese screen, just like she had always done. Then the lights dimmed, like they did every time. And an eerie whistling filled the room, and Walter whispered his arrival, even touching Houdini on the inside of his right leg. 
After a break, Walter ordered an electric bell enclosed in a wooden box brought to Houdini's feet. Then Walter levitated a megaphone and boomed, Have Houdini tell me where to throw it. So Houdini responds, Throw it towards me. And the megaphone flew through the air and crashed in front of him. This sounds fantastic, right? Here's the problem. This was done in the dark. It's stupid that all of this was done in the dark. Why Houdini didn't just say, cool, we're going to leave the lights on. Do that again. But anyhow, we'll get to that. So all of this was done in the dark, and this was just the beginning. Throughout the evening, Walter produced a sequence of metaphysical spectacles, ringing the bell box on command, tipping over the wooden screen. It all sounds real, right? Well, no. Even though it was done in the dark, none of it fooled Houdini. Because Houdini noticed that Marjorie's husband always sat on her right during every performance. Houdini also guessed correctly that he would be seated at her left in the circle, with hands joined, feet and legs touching. So in preparation for the evening, Houdini wore a tight bandage under his right knee all day. He said it was so painful it made his skin tender to even the slightest touch. This heightened sensitivity was for a purpose. He could feel Marjorie twist and flex in the dark as she moved her left ankle slightly to get to that bell box under the table. Boom, she's doing the bell box. Later, he felt her shift again to tip the Chinese screen with her right foot. Boom. Then, the flying megaphone flew and it stumped Houdini for a few hours until he figured it out. Marjorie would place that uh, megaphone on her head, dunce cap style, with a momentarily free hand. Guess whose hand? If you said her husband, you'd be correct. She would then jerk her head in his direction to send it crashing to the floor. So Houdini said, I've got her. All fraud, every bit of it, one more sitting and I will be ready to expose everything. At a second seance at a Boston hotel, it featured a levitating table, which Houdini reached out into the dark and found Marjorie's head lifting the table from beneath. He again felt her legs move as she reached to ring the bell box. He said, she's the slickest ruse I ever detected. Even with all of this, he caught her doing it. The committee still wasn't sure, but since they weren't unanimous, they did not pay her any money. That seemed to piss off Marjorie because Walter screamed, Houdini, you goddamn son of a bitch, I put a curse on you now that will follow you every day for the rest of your short life. Now, in October, Scientific American published an article that described the committee as hopelessly divided. That pissed off Houdini. So Houdini didn't just sit back. In November of that same year, he published a pamphlet on his own called Houdini Exposes the Tricks Used by the Boston Medium Marjorie, complete with drawings of how she produced her, quote, manifestations. So this pissed off Marjorie's supporters. So this pissed off Marjorie's supporters. Everybody's pissed off by this point. The supporters threatened to beat up Houdini any chance they got. And Walter had one more prediction. Here's where it gets kind of weird, kind of real. In August of 1926, Walter proclaimed that the end was near. Houdini will be gone by Halloween. And guess what? 
That's exactly what happened. Houdini died that Halloween. Now, I have to say, I can't independently confirm that Walter actually said this. I'm just based it on a lot of the sites that I went to all seem to have this little fact. So, obviously, take that part with a grain of salt. But if that is true, that's pretty weird. Okay, so that was a lot of cool, crazy spiritualists, but let's change it up a little bit, and let's talk about the Aliashenka, which is a small alien fetus found in the village of... And I'm going to get this one wrong. So Michael, drink up. Kalinovi near Kishtim in Russia. I didn't get that right. Okay, now this happened in the uh, in August of 1996. Now we're all the way up to 96. It was gray. It was about nine and a half inches long. It was hairless with a bunch of dark spots on its head with very large eye holes and a slit for a nose. Now, Alashenka... Yeah, I said that right. Alashenka was found by an old woman... Tamara Vasilineva, Vasilevna Prosvinri, Pros, Prosvinna, whatever, it doesn't matter. It was found by a woman named Tamara. Guess what? This woman named Tamara was mentally ill. Word about the fetus, word about the fetus, word about the fetus went everywhere quickly, and the little town was loving all the reporters because they were all paying them money to talk about the alien fetus. So boy, did they talk it up. Alrighty, here's some weird details. A lot of sites mentioned that right after the interviews, Tamara was admitted to a psych hospital and the fetus was taken from her. She later died trying to escape the hospital. Look, this isn't some kind of conspiracy. I said it a while ago. She was a known person that was mentally ill. Everyone knew it. There's no weird conspiracy that they took this alien fetus from her and then had her killed. Now, the fetus was given to the local police by the psychiatric hospital, and then it seemed to have disappeared. Depending on where you get your information, it seems like it disappeared. Most sites think it went to a private collector's collection and is still out there somewhere, which is gross for this following reason. Because a doctor from the local hospital who had allegedly seen the corpse claimed that it corresponded to a normal 20 to 25-week human fetus, prematurely born, and was not alien in any way. Also, according to genetic experts at the Moscow Vavilov Institute of, Gen of General Genetics, DNA analysis of the clothes Alashenka was wrapped in revealed no evidence that he was extraterrestrial. It was a premature fetus. On April 15, 2004, the scientists made an official statement that the creature was a premature Human infant with severe deformities. Oh, and it wasn't a he. I'm sorry. It was actually a she. It was a premature female human, female human infant with severe deformities. Nothing more, nothing less. So that collector that paid probably a lot of fucking money to get, quote, the alien fetus. Yeah, you got a premature baby on display somewhere and you're sick. Okay, let's move on to the world of Bigfoot and a major hoaxer. His name was Ray Wallace, and in 1958, Bigfoot hit the news big, right where Wallace lived. He was right up there in the northwest, Willow Creek, around that area, and he came up with an idea. First, he started reporting a bunch of Bigfoot sightings. Why? Because he had a bunch of people that wanted to go out and see Bigfoot. So he became a guide. Then, he started playing Bigfoot sounds he recorded for the news... Then, 
he made fake Bigfoot tracks and walked all over the woods, loving all the attention. Now, his sons admitted the truth about his hoaxes after he died. His son said it wasn't his fault that people were latched onto it. But right from the beginning, he was Bigfoot. Wallace said the family decided to come clean about Bigfoot after a reporter for the Seattle Times approached them following Wallace's death. The son said he's up there in heaven laughing. He was living proof that God has a sense of humor. All right, so that one, I got to admit, no real harm there. Except hoaxes like this make it really hard for people to believe in Bigfoot, so that kind of bums me out. But we already know, or at least us smart people already know, that not every Bigfoot sighting is a Bigfoot. Most of them are bears. Not every Bigfoot track is real. Most of them are fake or melted snow. But if we can get rid of these or expose these hoaxers, what's left? There's a chance, and for me, I think a very solid chance, that Bigfoot is real. Okay, up next is the Anson Lights, and uh, this one's kind of a bummer. Coming from Anson, Texas, the almost nightly light has this BS legend. Again, BS. The legend goes that a grieving mother disappeared never to be seen again as she was searching for her son, who had also recently disappeared during a snowstorm, and he was never seen again either. The light that people see to this day is actually her ghostly lantern as she searches for him forever. Okay. All that's garbage, but if you want to see the Anson Lights, you really can. All you have to do is head north out of Abilene on US 83. When you get to US 180 in Anson, the first traffic light you reach, you take a right. You go about a mile or so down the road until you reach a cemetery. You take a right on the dirt road next to the cemetery. You go about a mile down the dirt road until you reach a crossroads. At the crossroads, you turn around and face back down the road towards the cemetery. Do this on a Saturday night, and you're going to be surrounded by a bunch of people who see the Anson lights. It's a lot like the Marfa lights. And uh, this light has, quote, baffled paranormal groups for decades. In fact, so many sites say that the Anson lights is a real paranormal phenomena. So you might be asking, yeah, well, Kurt, how do you know it's bullshit? Well, just like the Marfa lights, it's very easy. So let me read you directly from a website of the students who debunked it. Around 9.30, Carolyn, Kurt, not me, Zach, Ann, Casey, Tyler number one, and Tyler number two gathered in the Chambers parking lot at ACU, piled into my car and Kurt's truck and headed north to Anson. I'm going to skip ahead. Boom, boom, boom. So they uh, look at Google Maps. They go to the thing. They go to the frame. Boom. They closed in. They see the lights. They're like, whoa, what the hell is going on with these lights? Only this time, they moved a little bit closer. And when they did, they could see the lights even better. And when they got even closer, they went, oh, it's car lights, just like Marfa. So they got even closer. They set out on the second part of the journey, driving on the dirt roads to get all the way to the light. Fortunately, as you can see from this map on this website, You'll have to go to their website. It just Google. You, you just Google Anson Lights. You'll find their website. Um, when you get to this map on the web, on this website, that last little bit of this drive would be exactly online with the ghost lights. We'd be driving right into it. So we set out. Then we took a turn, heading north. The light came back into view off to our right. We took another right and lost the light. But taking a final left turn, we got on the sight line. The light came back into view as we drove towards it. 
Our conclusion? The Anson light is not a ghost light. It is from the US 277. It is the approaching car lights from southbound traffic on US 277. The Southwestern Ghost Hunters Association admitted that they were right. They tracked it all the way to its source. If there was any doubt back on the crossroads looking through binoculars, those were effectively dispelled by this trip. So again, conclusion, not a ghost light. All you have to do is do exactly what these kids did and you will find the source of the Anson lights. It's the southbound traffic on US 277. Those kind of bum me out. I really do like these whole, these um these weird lights like the Marfa lights and the Anson lights. A lot of people think, "Oh, it's ball lightning" or "Oh, it's uh Native Americans." And there's a lot of cool tales that go around with them. Sadly, all of them have a very simple, very scientific explanation. Still cool to see. You can still go out there and check it out, but it's not a ghost. All right, this next one, let me see where we're at for time. Oh, we're doing fine. This next one is a common one, and this isn't about one specific statue, but about the whole phenomena. Statues that seem to drink fluids. Now, throughout the years, there have been a number of stories of religious statues around the world drinking from people's offerings of milk or wine or what have you. And this one has a very simple scientific answer. But first, let me tell you about one of these statues. In India, a Lord Ganesha statue drank milk from its worshippers and the news ran a story about it. The news said that huge crowds formed as people held spoonfuls of milk, spoonfuls of milk up to the trunk of the statue and watched the milk disappear. The phenomena was widely accepted as a miracle until scientists examined the case and concluded that the milk was being siphoned down the surface of the statue in a thin film that wasn't easily visible. Nothing more, nothing less. In fact, as more people made offerings, pool of milk, pools of milk actually formed at the base of the statue because it was going down the surface of the statue and collecting at the bottom. It's all very simple. Statues, no matter how smooth you think they are, have slight imperfections, and the surface area goes down that, uh, the milk goes down that area, almost imperceivable to the eye, and just collects at the bottom. I think this one's kind of neat, kind of cool. Um, I'm not a big proponent in statue miracles, I think if there's going to be miracles, it should be a little bit cooler than just some statue crying or drinking milk. So I've never been a big proponent on this one or a big like. I, I never really liked these, but uh, nonetheless, it's been proven fake anyway by science. So there you go. Okay, finally, the last one for tonight. A crop circle appeared in a field of rye outside of Johannesburg, South Africa during the first week of February 1993. Now, people and websites still show this photo online as proof of real crop circles around the world. Now, when this crop circle happened, people started looking at it and it said, and they said, hey, you know what? That looks vaguely familiar. In fact, it looks like the BMW logo. Now, many people said, oh, no, it's just a coincidence and that it was real and again, proof of UFOs. And like I said, you can still find this image on crop circle websites. So go ahead and try to look for it. But guess what? That crop circle that looked like the BMW logo? Well, it turned out to be the work of Hunt Lascaris Ad Agency working on behalf of BMW for a TV commercial with the tagline, Perhaps there is intelligent life out there after all. 
That's right, it was all faked for a TV commercial. Now, I think this list could argue the fact that there is intelligent life out there, but the majority of people are way too easily fooled and don't do enough research. So, for as much intelligent life out there, there's a lot of ignorant or just plain dumb or plain stubborn people that even after you prove something is false, they still can't just go, oh, okay, that one's fake. Let me look at something that's real. Let me look up something else. Nope. It's still real. It's got to be real. Everything is real. If you believe one thing, you got to believe it all. No, you don't. I think that about does it, but fear not. I have about 20 more paranormal hoax examples for a future episode. So if you like this one, there's going to be even more. And if you didn't like this one, well, sometime in the future, when this second episode comes out, you can always just listen to an old episode of mine, I guess, because you don't like it at all. Alrighty, anyhow. I hope you guys like this one. I love doing debunking episodes. I know it's not everybody's cup of tea. Somebody, Everybody wants something real in each of these. But there's a lot of real cool stuff in the paranormal news. So on this episode, there was technically some real paranormal stuff. But again, like I said at the beginning and throughout this episode, you take away all this fake stuff, there is still a lot of paranormal stuff that can't be explained. And that stuff is the stuff I want to investigate. I want everybody to focus on and investigate. There's a lot of cool, a lot of really strange stuff happening out there, and I want to find out what it is. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and remember, don't fuck with Stitch, not even in a review, because that's a dick thing to do. That's the of one. Durbin, not they lock it out. Durbin, not they lock it out. One, remember.